you are listening to The Curator Podcast, Season 2, Episode 10, an interview with Dave Hawes. Dave, it's a fucking pleasure to meet you, man. How you doing? I'm well, man. It's a pleasure to meet you too. Yeah, I've been a fan of, of you since Building Burn landed on my door when I was writing for a music website, oh, cool. which is now, as I was figured out earlier on, it was nine years ago, <laughs> which was makes it? you feel really old. Was it nine years ago? Yeah, I don't know, man. It's uh, It seems even longer ago to me. Um, it's like a whole different lifestyle, a whole different mindset. Um, but... Yeah, I'm glad you stuck with me. <laughs> well, I'm here now, so I guess, you know, I must have stuck with you. <laughs> I hope. Yeah, exactly. I'm here too. So uh, this podcast is about creativity and passion, not to get too wanky, but that's kind of what it's all about, I suppose. Um, and let's get on to the first question, shall we? Yeah. Uh, so when you said in other interviews that you wrote 40 songs for this record, mm-hmm. is that is that uh, accurate? Uh, yeah, that is accurate. Um, in fact, I was just this morning talking with my brother about like, how do we get those songs out quickly and without the machinations of the music industry? And he was suggesting like uh, a hip hop mixtape kind of thing. You know, we just drop it in the middle of nowhere. Um, I'm not sure how to do it, you know, but yeah, there's a lot of songs. There's sort of, um, there's a whole record that I recorded that's almost it just needs a few bits and pieces and mixing um whole eight or nine song record that um is done that was done before Bury Me in Philly was even recorded um so there's that and then there's uh sort of the more singer songwritery bits that uh that were sort of b-sides to this record and then there's all the songs that um that were maybe set aside as another loved one's record. I don't know what that's going to be. So yeah, there's a lot of songs. Um, and, uh, we'll see. I don't know what, I mean, the, the joy is in making them. The, the challenge comes in like how to get them to people, how to get people to hear them and how to, uh, keep your sort of like your ship afloat, your like uh, financial ship afloat, you know, keeping people busy and engaged and all that stuff. So uh, you're serving multiple masters, and I think that's part of the challenge. Is that balance something you think about quite a lot? Well, balance in general is, you know, that's the hardest thing to strike, and uh, I'm not that good at it. I, I'm kind of extreme. Um, you know, we're in the middle of a 19-show tour with no days off, uh, with a brand new band that's never played together, uh, except for you know maybe eight shows in the in the states. That's not balanced, you know. Uh, balance would be a little bit at a time, and you know. So I'm trying to figure out more balance and in life, and that hopefully applies to everything you do. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's very hard to find. <laughs> would you? I mean, given you wrote forty songs, would you call yourself a prolific songwriter? No, I wouldn't. Um, I think uh, it comes in fits and starts. And I think if I'm, 
if I'm honest, it's it's a lot more um, excruciating than it is like just things flowing out. Once the flow comes, uh, it's great, and and you you know you set them aside and uh, cherish the ones you finish. But uh, it the block can come and stay for a while. Um, so it took a lot of different experiences to to get that all those blockages moving you know like uh doing the falcon was helpful doing the albrights was helpful um and then playing the 10 loved ones anniversary shows was helpful just in realizing that um the process is never all that different you know like in all those those three different elements it was a reminder that you just do the thing you know and and worry about you don't worry about the outcome. You just do the thing and try to get it as honest and sturdy and good as possible. And then things come from there. It's not about um, waiting for like the perfect lightning bolt to come every time. It's about doing the work. So those were really good reminders and, and helped uh, form like a safe working space for, for Bury Me and Philly. The way that you kind of mentioned, the way that you kind of spoke about that there is like, it makes me wonder, is it maybe something that you've kind of overthink sometimes about getting into the process? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, it's something um, that can definitely be overthought and overcooked. Um, and so it's better to just try to get to that childlike wonder about creativity, you know, that that thing that's fearless and exciting and collaborative and fun and um worry worry about the editor part later you know like you want to just do the work every day um if you can get to it i think touring is it's hard to find the the time there and then often when you're home from touring you're trying to recharge your batteries you're trying to see the people you love if you have like a significant other you want to spend that time so it's tricky um and i think that uh there's, there's like two elements to it. One, you can't complain about having the dream job of playing music for a living. So people really don't want to hear you crow about it. And then in addition, there's just not that many. It's, just, it's such a rare thing that there's not that many people you can sort of confide in about it. Um, so, yeah, that balance is, is, is tricky. And uh, But I think, you know, finding joy in the work is, is the point. And uh, letting all that other stuff kind of go the press and the rollout and all that other stuff that can be exciting, but often is cumbersome. And, you know, it's often like, uh, the machinations of, of that often, often involve like the word no, which, <laughs> which, uh, you know, creativity, you want to just keep things open and wild and free at least for a while, you know, and, until you start to hone in what, you know, what the final piece of furniture is going to be, you know? When it came to writing that particular batch of songs, um, was it any different to how you'd approach songs in the past? Not exactly. Um, mostly it's the same thing. The, the main difference was that my brother got involved. I had such such an enormous amount of material and uh, you know, tons of snippets, tons of melodies, tons of lyric ideas, tons of like, you know, I got the chorus for this one and the verse for that one. And I just was all over the map. I had, I had left myself this really long trail of breadcrumbs and so once he got involved and started to say like oh man that with you song and bury me in philly those are two that you need to like make touchstones of the record 
and uh, I really liked the that that song that the song that became the flinch. Like he was pointing some of that stuff out, and the ones that were unfinished or like at eighty percent, he was like, "Well, let's you know." I was like, "Let's do this together," and then he was very helpful in developing like uh, lyrical couplets and ideas for like Divine Lorraine and things like that, where. Um, you know, he, once he got involved, we were, we really started to see the record crystallize out of the mist of the 40, uh, songs. And, you know, then all these other ideas, like snippets of songs, you know, there's multiple beyond the 40 that, uh, are just still, still sort of living in my phone. Um, so he was key. And then once we started to hone that batch down to about 15 or, or so, maybe even 20, um, Eric Bazilian and William, the guys that produced, um, they were key in in uh, in selecting and honing and getting it ready to be like an actual album. We got it from twenty down to the eleven that it is the record. So uh, those were the two um, major major helps was Tim's involvement and then the producer uh, the producers getting involved, uh, Eric and, and Bill. Was there any trepidation about getting a family member involved? Well, initially there was. When when I brought him out on tour, I was a little concerned because he was in college. And, uh, you know, coming from a working class family, college is a big goal. Um, you know, our parents didn't graduate college, so for our three sisters to have graduated was a big deal. For me to have gone and then dropped out was an even bigger deal. And I didn't want to be uh, a bad influence on him, bringing him into the rock and roll life and you know, having him abandon his schooling and all that. But he was sort of uncertain as to what his path in college was going to be. And he's a really talented guy. And so he came out on this long North American tour with me, 10 weeks long, uh, on Devour. And uh, really took to it, really was great at it, really fast. And uh, was good at the lifestyle. And our relationship became super strong. You know, there's like a big age difference. And when Tim came out on tour, we were spending 24 hours a day together and really enjoying it. So the creativity part was an out was a growth out of that experience. So there was there was no trepidation by the time we got around to writing because we had already gelled so much creatively um, just in performing the Devour songs and like hanging out. So. Uh, yeah, no, it was really joyful and uh, really exciting. And like I said, even as 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 recently as this morning, we were talking about the next step, you know, the next batch of songs, which I guess in essence is like songs that we've already got pretty much done, like how to bring them out to the world because there has been a long gap between Devour and Bury Me. Like I don't intend for there to be a long gap between Bury Me and the next thing. So being in, in that cycle of like the album and then the tour and you know being in that whole thing, um, is that is that why you want to kind of release the next thing quite quickly is to kind of maybe keep people engaged? I mean, yeah, I would be lying if I said that wasn't a concern. Um, you know, now we have a band and we want the band to stay busy and get better. And in order to do that, you got to play shows. And in order to play shows, you got to have an audience. And in order to have an audience, you have to have people interested in what you're doing. And uh, I think increasingly in this day and age, uh, you you have like three or four months for a record and then everyone's heard it. And unless some weird stroke of 
hit comes along, you know, everyone's in that same pattern, you know, whether you're Leonard Cohen or, well, you know, God rest his soul, but, you know, whether you're Neil Young or me or even Beyonce, you know, it's like the people, and when it comes to uh, entertainment, you know, we rip through our Netflix shows really fast and we're ready for the next season of Love to come, you know. You hear the Beyonce record and you're wowed by her immense talent for a couple of weeks and then you're like, okay, what else you got, Beyonce? And so I'm... I'm guilty of that too, as a as a uh, consumer or whatever of of entertainment. So I understand it. I also have my own like creative uh, master to serve, and you don't want to rush something right out. So it's 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 tricky. But um, I think that um, the band is really good, and I'd love to hear what the band sounds like in the studio. Um, and I want to keep writing. Um, I don't. I stopped partying, so like, in theory, uh, I have a lot more time on my hands to devote to creative endeavors, and so my thought is like, let's just keep rolling, make hay while the sun shines, you know. Um, Stephen, you went to write this record. Did you approach it like a job, or like, what was the process like for that? I think when I started to approach it like a job, I got better results. Um, I again like. I've heard that a lot from somewhere. It's like if you approach it like the nine to five, then you actually get something quicker. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that you know, when you're young, you're more in touch with maybe a, an innocent spirit or something, and you've got no audience, and and so you're not thinking about the critics. Like they're just not even like a a part of your thought process. You're just trying to get that very first batch of songs done, and you just want it to rhyme. <laughs> so like. Uh, all those things that come along later, the blockages are of your own mind's making, you know? And so um, my thought is that uh, if you, if that is all happening, you're better off plowing through and spending hours and hours a day at it and tinkering about, learning new things about your instrument, learning new things about songwriting, figuring out how other people have done it, um, and trying to tap into the art of uh, what you're doing so you can give yourself some context. And all that stuff helped me uh, craft up songs. You know, like there are things about what Woody Guthrie uh, does with songs that were super helpful or Bob Dylan or or even Sting or Alanis Morissette, like from all over the, the, the range of, of popular song you can always find uh, something useful in almost everybody's art. And so I did some studying. I like to do more uh, of, of a lot of my favorites and then people I don't actually necessarily listen to, you know, like I've read up on them and and it's fun. It's fun to have that knowledge. You feel like actually, you actually, um, you feel a little bit more like an expert in your field when you know more about it, you know, not necessarily saying I'm an expert songwriter by any stretch, but at least you can say like, Oh yeah, that I, I realize what device John Prine used in that bridge, you know, like at least knowing that much, you're like, okay, I, I, I kind of get it a little bit, you know, there is such a, like a magical element to it that I do respect. And, uh, uh you know, so I want to leave that be what, it um it is but it's it's good to it's good to school yourself as to what uh what you're actually doing with your time you know 
Hi folks, it's Mark here. Just thought I'd jump in to remind you to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already. You can do that by hitting the subscribe button in whatever podcasting app that you're currently using. It may even be a like button or a heart, I don't know, but if you can subscribe to it, I'd really appreciate it. More subscribers means that more people will see this podcast and the more people see it, more people listen to it and more people listen to it, I can get our guests on, which is great. Anyway, let's get back to this interview with Dave Hawes. A lot of people think it's just magic when, I mean, approaching like a job is how the best songwriters get the results, you know? I think so. I mean, that's what Leonard Cohen always said. He always, he said he, you know, he locked himself in the tower of song and worked and worked and worked and tried every possible thing, whether it was sobriety or drunkenness and, you know, uh, intense Buddhist-like focus and then just reckless abandon. Um... I think like, yeah, it's, it is my job if I've been blessed with that as a, as like getting what you want when you ask the universe for it, like you should work at it. You know, that's, that's my take, you know. Where does the drive to keep doing it come from? Like where did it start and like, how did it, like you could have done anything else. Like you were, you were, you had your own construction business before as well. So I mean, that was obviously an option at some point too. So like, when did. Dave go, I'm going to be the songwriter guy that plays in bands and just tours the world all the time? Um, well, I mean, I think that uh, I always wanted to do it from when I'm a kid, you know, and uh, I don't know. I, I mean, have you ever put on a roof? It's it. That's really hard work, you know, I, I, and this is there's so much joy in this work, so. I think it's hard to leave it behind. You know, it's hard to think like you can just go do something else. You know, this this is the closest thing to to being like a magician. You know, like there's a magic trick to it, and and you can try to rewrite the same song three different times, and and there's only going to be one of them that kind of sticks to people's ribs, and there's some weird magic thing that clicks that way, and uh, that's always interesting to me. You know, and and it's that's sort of the the dragon or the mermaid that you chase, you know, like that's, that's what we're trying to do. I don't know. I, I, I think it's, uh, you're sort of like, you end up married to kind of a mystery, you know, like a nun or something, you know what I mean? Like that's, that's, that seems to be what it's been like for years now. And I can't really see it changing, you know, like even people like Paul McCartney and stuff mention it the same way, you know, and he's one of the greatest gifts to music that's ever walked on the planet, so. And one thing I was kind of wondering is, um, one of the things that struck me when I first heard Built and Burn was the lyrics, and uh, that they're a lot more, I'm not going to say thoughtful, because that would be disparaging to some other songwriters, <laughs> but you know what I'm getting at, like, has that always been like a big focus on, on like, when you write songs, having like also like, astute or kind of like quite well-crafted lyrics because a lot of a lot of songwriters it's just kind of the, the, the second thought if you know what I mean yeah um I mean I think that was what pulled me away from the ferocity of of punk rock was that I would spend all this time on the lyrics and then sing them so fast and in and, and that sort of punk delivery that people weren't getting them and I found that to be frustrating I mean now I it's less frustrating I mean I think like with age, you you just uh, you soften a little bit, and you end up saying like you're just thankful for any audience at all. But I do think um, it's always been super important to me. Connor Oberst and Patty Griffin and Jenny Lewis and and then all the 
the pillars of of song, uh, they, that that's what draws me in. You know, there's is the lyric and like you know the the way the lyric and the melody work together and all that stuff. So um, yeah, I've always spent a lot of time on it. That's what holds me up. I have endless amounts of little tunes and bits and bobs and. I'm thankful that that comes in a quick stream and that I have maybe a little bit of an ear for a melody, but I don't have an endless supply of words and I, and I struggle with it and I work hard at it and hold myself up to a very high bar. I mean, your hometown boy, Scott Hutchison is like one of those guys that I'm like in awe of, you know, he's a wonderful lyricist and I try to, uh, I try to use that influence in my own music to, uh, to uh to to find an artful way to express the stuff that I'm trying to say I'm asking one of the reasons I ask about lyrics rather is because it makes me wonder um do you read a lot is, are, you, are you a big reader as well or? yeah yeah I I do read a lot um I uh I think that you know just like anything else the more you read the better uh, the better you are at, at writing and seeing how other people right and how they put together their their thoughts and their art is uh super helpful it gives you new ideas takes you down different paths um yeah re reading is certainly really important jason isbel is always stressing that that if you want to be a better writer be a better reader you've got to fill the tank basically sort of yeah yeah i mean that it's uh it's definitely given me tons of ideas uh you know reading novels and reading articles and staying engaged with the world is you know, without going too far into the Twitterverse. <laughs> that's a danger, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think it is. I think that's sort of the opposite. It's like, it. well, I think it can, can dumb down the whole process. And, Absolutely. And, but but then again, in a way, so do songs. You know, you, you it's a three-minute or four-minute uh, encapsulization of a feeling. And, you know, it, it, done at its best, they're, they're similar, you know, a tweet or a song. But, but. I just mean the the noise that comes along with everyone having that voice and that access, but uh, yeah, I think you got to fill the tank. Exactly right. The, the, the Twitter thing's interesting to me because it is like a lot of the time it can be like vandalism almost. You, you know what I mean? I think so. I, I, it's interesting because uh, being on a tour like this, you know, without any breaks, I've I've kind of realized that. Um, you know, I want to have a connection with people and I want to uh, have a long conversation with the audience. Um, but we also live in a different time than when I was coming up. And the access that people uh, assume they have can lead you into some strange directions, you know, where you're like, hey, you know, I, I, I want to put the show on that I think is best. I know that you have favorite songs. I know you think we should do this, but you know, so so you're sort of like doing this interesting um, dance, dance, exactly right. And and I think like having the confidence to lead that dance is important. Um, but then you also, as a good leader, you kind of have to know when to back off and stuff too. So it's 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 interesting, man. Like we don't we don't live in in the time where most of my heroes were made and that's that's my template for how to operate but i also realize that you know with these new technologies and these new ideas that um there's a lot of good in it and a lot of opportunity in it so it, it's an interesting 
time to be to be doing this, you know? And now your president does policy via Twitter, which is always great. What's that? And now your president does policy via Twitter, <laughs> which is always great. Yeah, yeah, that seems to be working out uh, with with uh, very unique results. Jesus. That's a scary time, man. Well, yeah, I mean, I think you see in that, in that realm how um, extremely layered, complicated issues become dumbed down to... Uh, sound bites that are very very dangerous yeah that's a whole different ball of wax i mean good lord he's a class you know he's a classic huckster you know the classic um guy that shows up to the door promising things that he'll never deliver on to take your money you know that's that's what i view him as i've always viewed him that way and so to see him leading our country is just terrifying snake oil salesman just in charge that's, right. that's exactly right snake oil salesman it's interesting that I, 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 the reason i brought the twitter thing is because a lot of people used to always like critique punk songs by saying you can't really change the world in like a three-minute punk song and and give your whole message across and now people try and do it over twitter it's fucking mental <laughs> <laughs> and they're usually punks yeah right yeah uh, i don't disagree i mean i i disagree that you can't change the world. You can. Rock and roll and uh, jazz and the blues and then punk rock and then hip hop. They've all changed the world and they've changed the world for the better. In fact, uh, the bubble I was living in right before Trump did get elected was was related to that. You know, the idea of like, um, I mean, a lot of progressive, enlightened ideas, so to speak, go hand in glove with art. In music and uh, I think you can change the world that way little by little um, I think it's dangerous to elevate your uh, importance past just you know putting your pants on one leg at a time but I do think that I've learned an immense amount from music and art about the way I want to live in the world and the world that I'd like to see and I think it sheds sh uh, enormous amounts of light have have been shed on the dangers of war and the horrors of war and and um you know immense compassion can be conveyed through songs and in music and writing you know it's, and i think that that's what we need that seems to be the most punk rock thing these days is compassion like that's interesting to me because we sit here as a couple of punks who've come up from diy you know and our world has been changed by that can't really deny that you know the fact that we can sit and have this conversation that you're from fucking you know america yeah. <laughs> you know it's like the most beautiful thing i think yeah i do too man i mean it's it's given me an enormous amount of uh of courage you know that spirit of the ramones or the stones or whatever like that thing that that goes all the way back to um i guess the enlightenment you know that thing that weaves but but in our century it's been it's been rock and roll and then punk rock and stuff but yeah, it, it does make the world smaller and, it, and it, it it allows us to appreciate each other's culture. You know, like I, I wouldn't have known very much about Glasgow or Scotland in general if I hadn't gotten the chance to play here. And I get to play here because of the music that I make and the fact that people are open to it. So and that's just proof enough that it does open doors and it does connect people. And I think it's I think that's incredible. That's the way I want to. That's the world I want to live in. 
you know. Speaking of connecting people, um, a lot of the shows in this tour reveal are being sold out or close to sold out. And after, after being away with a record, I mean, was it three years since Devourer came out? Four, three? Yeah, uh, it was 2013, and we did a headline tour in that fall, and then only did festivals in 14, and then yeah, we vanished. It's such a regret of mine that we did vanish. It was foolish, and uh, I won't bore you with all the details as to why. It really wasn't my decision entirely you know i was kind of like leaving it up to other people that thought it would be good to stay away and it was really foolish but i feel immensely fortunate to come back and have people still here you know and, and to be able to present the band and and not exactly pick up where we left off but for the most part and uh have people still on board you know i i was thinking about it the other day we played manchester last night and the last time I was there was a different time for everybody. You know, the, the, I was coming on the t on the heels of supporting Alkaline Trio and Gaslight Anthem, and those are bands that don't even that haven't worked for years now. You know, they're all in different places, and it made me think about the people singing the songs, and their lives are in different places. They may have had kids, or they may have gone ahead and uh, gotten into a new style of music, or or gotten a new job that keeps them from live entertainment. You know, there's all kinds of things like that. And so to come back to the same clubs and the same towns and have people come out is incredibly encouraging and really awesome. It makes me want to work all the harder to, to give them a good show. Does that make, does that uh, make touring almost kind of feel like home in some sense? Then? Yeah, that's the strange thing that happens is like you end up feeling uh, like displacement is home you know <laughs> it's a it's a bizarre thing I mean at this point I've got Philadelphia as a home I live actually in Santa Barbara with my with my um girlfriend and, and our peer group and everything and that's a home and then touring is is very normalized you know it's it's all this is familiar to 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 leave Manchester at Gorilla and come to King Tut's. It's like, well, I've done this before. I I know where the backstage is. I know how to get my laundry done in Glasgow. Things things like that. And so, yeah, it does start to feel bizarrely like home. And uh, and so when I'm in and in quote unquote home, you know, back in California, the things that are strange about it are even more strange because I'm not doing at nighttime what I'm used to doing or feel the most compelled by, you know? <laughs> so it's a weird thing, man. It's like, it's the uh, blessing and curse of, of living sort of a transient lifestyle. But you still do it anyway. I love to do it, man. I'm one of those lifers, you know, like I don't, um, I, there, there's such an enormous, uh, enormously long line of people that are more talented and, have better songs that are sitting at home who don't get the opportunity to do this, that it would be a disrespect to them for me to not take the bull by the horns and go out and do it. You know what I mean? Like my dad and all of his buddies are just like, you know, they worked at their companies for 30 and 40 years. Those guys work jobs that are actually very, very difficult for dozens and dozens of years and then retire, you know, and they look at what, what we do and wish they would have done it even for a minute. And so to get to do it as a job is, I still think about it that way. I don't, I try not to think about it in that sort of 
Rihanna or Kanye kind of way where it's like, I, I get it. I get the pressure that must be on a person like Kanye West and where, where all eyes are on him and everything he does is scrutinized and criticized. But I try to think about it like an opportunity rather than a complete burden because uh, I think I think in general, if you can view life that way, you can have a happier life. That's actually a really positive note to end on, I think. Um, Dave, is there anything else you want to say or anything you want to ask me before we finish? No, just uh, wanted to thank you for the opportunity to, to do the interview and it's been a pleasure. Thank you for talking to me and it's also been a total pleasure to meet you, finally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right on, man. Cheers. Cheers, man. As I said in that interview, I've been a fan of Dave Hawes' music for quite a long time now, so it was great to finally get a chance to sit down and talk to him. I know I say that every single time, but it is always great to get a chance to sit down and talk to someone about their music, especially if it's music that you like. He was a super nice guy, and I appreciate him taking the time to talk to me. That was the second time I'd seen him playing live. The first time was supporting the Gaslight Anthem many, many years ago, and it was just him and a guitar. However, at this show he had a full band, The Mermaid, as he talks about, and they were fucking great. You should definitely check out Bury Me in Philly if you haven't already. It's a really, really good record. That's all for this episode. Thank you very much for listening. You can find me on Twitter, at The Curator Pod. For more information, or if you want to just send me an email, if you want to chat some more, whatever, go to thecuratorpodcast.com. Until next time, bye-bye.